Psalm 1, verse 6, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now John 21, 15 through 17, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. We're going to talk today about how Jesus knows you, so go feed his sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being here, Lord. And thank you for these students, each and every one of them you have a plan for. You know them, Lord. You know their heart. May they take that as an encouragement, and may they go out and help other people. And in Jesus' name, amen. 1977, September 28th, 3 o'clock in the morning. A call goes out to 200 New Jersey state troopers and FBI agents. Meet at the West, at the West Orange Armory. At the armory, these 200 troopers and agents are given assignments. They are paired up, and they are sent out with warrants to arrest key members of the New Jersey mob. For the next three hours, as members of the mob are arrested and brought in to and brought in, the New Jersey State Police will put the finishing touches on what is one of the largest, the largest, the most significant attacks against organized crime in the history of the state. As the police are leading in various members of the mob into, into be arraigned and to be put into jail, one of them, Ronnie Sardella, notices a familiar face, a man named Bobby Bob Colvert, Bobby Colvert. Bobby, what'd they pinch you for, he asks. Before Bobby Colvert could answer, a state trooper responds, he's one of us. He's a Jersey trooper. The man known as Bobby Colvert was, in fact, Bob Delaney, an undercover New Jersey state police officer who had gained 30 pounds and grown a Fu Manchu mustache for the sake of blending in with the New Jersey mafia. He had ran a... He had ran a trucking company and gained their confidence as someone that was willing to help them out in their endeavors. His testimony ultimately led to the conviction of over 30 key members of the Genovaza and Bruno crime families. Delaney, however, would struggle with his own identity in the following years. He needed professional counseling. He, it was extremely difficult for him to adjust back into being just a normal New Jersey state trooper, into being a normal person. Eventually, somewhat ironically, one of the greatest undercover police officers in the state of, in the history of New Jersey would go on to become a, a referee in the NBA, one of the top referees in the NBA. After all, Shaquille O'Neal can hardly intimidate you if you've been hanging around with mob hitmen, right? <laughs> the mob thought they knew Bobby Colvert. They didn't. In fact, Bobby Colvert, Bob Delaney, did not even know himself. In John 21, faced with his threefold failure, his threefold denial of Jesus Christ, Peter has only one thing to appeal to, Jesus' knowledge of him. This is not a cop-out. This is not a failure on Peter's part to make, that, uh, to make that appeal. To the contrary, as we shall see, this is an act of faith, an act of faith out of desperation that is met with a commission. 
In Psalm 1-6, we saw the confident declaration that God knows the righteous man, the path of the righteous. Here in Psalm 1, it is closely linked with the man who delights in the Torah, delights in the law of God. This is not legalistic. In fact, it resonates very well with 1 John 2-3. And hereby, we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. There is a link between relationship, knowledge, and obedience very clearly. And yet, at this point in Peter's life, that actually does not do him much good. Precisely because Peter cannot stand up at that point and declare, you know me, Lord, I have kept your commandments. You know me, Lord, I have been loyal to you. He can't even say, I love you, Lord. Look at the proof. The problem is precisely at this point, Peter has not shown that sort of loyal obedience to his master that Jesus demands. He has nothing to show. He brings nothing to the cross. In fact, he wasn't even willing to hang around the cross like the lady disciples were. With, with, within this passage, Jesus' threefold commissioning of Peter is universally acknowledged by scholars and, and preachers to represent a commissioning, not a rejection. Jesus is not throwing Peter under the bus here. As such, it offers both hope and a challenge, because while Psalm 1 is the standard that we should shoot for, there are times in our lives where we cannot honestly claim Psalm 1 like we should. It is in those times that we turn to John 21 and Peter's appeal to Jesus' knowledge. Here in John 21, I love the epilogue because there have been various themes interwoven all throughout the Gospel of John. The theme of love. John is the love gospel more than any others. The theme of wisdom. Jesus is ultimate wisdom. The theme of shepherding. John, more than any other place in the New Testament, uses the imagery of shepherding very consistently. The theme of knowledge, more so. I want to take you on an active whirlwind tour through John, a quick tour through John, focusing on that theme of knowledge. I ran a search recently on knowledge terminology in John, looking at gnosko, oida, gnosis, those sort of words. There are 143 occurrences of those sort of knowledge words in John, compared to 588 in the entire New Testament. That means 24% of all the uses of such words occur in John. Now, to put that in perspective... John, just the gospel of John, not even the Johannine literature in general like Revelation and the epistles, just the gospel of John makes up 11% of the entire New Testament. And yet he uses knowledge terminology 24% of the, of the use in the entire New Testament. If I understand statistics correctly, if I am representing the data correctly, and that might not be the case, but if I understand the statistics correctly, that means John uses knowledge terminology, those sorts of words, at double the right of the rest of the New Testament. Knowledge is a major theme in the Gospel of John. Turn to John 1. It starts in John 1. I'm going to take you through a quick tour of the entire Gospel, and then we're going to end up in John 21. Again, John 1:47 all starts here. Jesus calls out to Nathaniel in verse 47. Honestly, I think a little bit sarcastically. <laughs> Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And Nathaniel continues the banter a little bit. Oh, how do you know me? <laughs> right? And then Jesus says, Jesus says, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. This knowledge of Nathaniel then stuns him. Jesus seems to almost make light of it in the next verse, promising even more incredible things. But Nathaniel becomes a disciple as part of this. New Testament scholar Jeffrey Tripp writes, Jesus neither shares nor hides his special knowledge haphazardly, but in the service of two related goals. Sharing special knowledge persuades doubting characters in order to build a group of believers to receive the spirit after his death. 
Now, in John 2, we see an interesting situation. John 2, verses 23 through 25. There are some that believe pistuo on Jesus, but Jesus himself did not commit pistuo again unto them because he knows them, because he knows all men. Jump real quick ahead to John 8 because something similar is going on here. John 8, yes, I warned you, I'm actually going to make you work today, moving back and forth in your Bible. John 8, chapter 14, it'll help keep you awake, so. Jesus talks about how he bears record of himself. He knows from whence I came, and yet ye cannot tell. That word is gnosko. They cannot tell, they cannot know from where he comes. And where he goes. In verse 30, as a result of this conversation with the Pharisees, most likely, many Jews then believed on him. Again, pistuo. Yet, it is this very same group of Jews that accused Jesus of being an illegitimate child. That same group regarding which Jesus denies that God is their father, even though they quote-unquote believe on him. Jesus even declares, you are of your father the devil. It's this this same group that will accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed in verses 48 and 52, and then try and kill him. Clearly, they're not born again, even though John, interestingly, says that they pistuo, they believe on him. So why not? Precisely because they did not know Jesus. They believe on him, but not the Jesus that Jesus presents himself as. In other words, Jesus is presenting himself as the the express image of the person of God, Hebrews 1.3. They are not willing to accept how far Jesus goes with his self-revelation. They can only believe on a Jesus that is safe and that is tame. There's always been throughout history people that will claim to believe on Jesus and to to a certain degree put their trust in Jesus for something. All you have to do is read liberal scholarship of the early 20th century that quite often used used faith as a key word. We have faith in Jesus, but not the Jesus of Jesus' own revelation, but rather a Jesus of their own making. The same with cults, of course. Any Mormon or JW will claim that they believe on Jesus to a certain degree, but the Jesus they're believing on is not the Jesus as he has revealed himself to us. To such people, Jesus will ironically declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now back to earlier in the book, chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus declares to Nicodemus that he should have known Gnosko about such matters as the new birth, while Jesus, in contrast, knows what he speaks about. In 4.1, Jesus is aware of what the Pharisees know. In 5.42, Jesus declares that he has known those Jews that are trying to kill him, that they do not have the love of God in him. Jesus has supernatural knowledge of everything that is within a person, whether they are hostile to him or whether they are open to him. John 6.60, let's park here for a minute. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, this flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, plural, and who should betray him, singular. And he said, therefore I said unto you that no man come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Here, Jesus has declared himself to be the Son of Man coming directly from the Father in heaven. In fact, 
Earlier, he has even gone so far as to say that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, by which he means participate in his atoning blood sacrifice for sins. If they are not willing to do that, they cannot be his friends, they cannot be his followers. In verse 62, he explicitly states that the Son of Man's origins are in heaven, not earth. And in verse 63, he declares that his words are not something that could be accounted for on the basis of human origins. Verse 64 declares that Jesus knows those who believe and and those who would betray him. This is a breaking point for many people. They cannot handle this sort of Jesus. So long as Jesus is merely a superior human being, you could even say a superhuman being, perhaps like Elisha or Elijah, so long as Jesus is merely a Jewish superhero that has some great teachings, in other words, and turns water into wine and so forth, they are content with that. They are okay with that. In fact, Jesus is even to a certain degree revolutionary. He's starting to say some things that are causing some concerns. How will this be taken by the Romans and so forth? Is he really the king? Is he really descended from the line of Judah? They're okay with that so far as it goes. But as soon as Jesus starts revealing that he has divine origins, they can't handle that knowledge. They cannot handle that Jesus. They depart. But I love what comes next. Look at verse 12, and this involves Peter. Jesus then, excuse me, verse 67, Jesus then said to the 12, and I I can picture this with a hint of sadness, will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. This this to me is one of the key assurance passages, which I don't think it's one that we often think of as an assurance passage, but Peter's confidence comes from the fact that he has put all his eggs in one basket, that he has nowhere to go but Jesus Christ. Peter then is willing to bet his soul on Jesus with no plan B because no one can truly come to Jesus and express faith in him if there is a plan B, if they figure they can go back to Buddha if this doesn't work out, if they are also relying on their good works or also Mary. There's a lot of good Roman Catholics out there that will say that they have faith in Jesus, but if they're also expressing faith in Mary, well, that's not really faith in Jesus then. But verse 69, look at verse 69. Even more so, this links faith and knowledge closely together. Both go hand in hand. We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our sure is the perfect tense of gnosko, have known. It's a past event. At somewhere in the past, Peter has come to that knowledge of who Jesus is, and he's okay with it, unlike everybody else that's leaving now. And it has ongoing significance. It is on the basis of that knowledge that he has confidence that Jesus can accomplish great things, that he will do what he says, that his words are in fact true. We know that we always say that intellectual assent is not enough, right, to to be truly saved. You must have faith. You must put your trust in Jesus Christ. We understand that. But the converse is also true as well. The problem with many a seeker-driven invitation is not that they don't talk about faith or trusting in Christ. They do. The problem is they have not yet presented Jesus for who he is. Jesus as the Messiah that demands, that brings you to a crisis point, that demands that you participate in an atoning sacrifice, that you eat his flesh and drink his blood. Any invitation that does not present a radical Jesus, an offensive Jesus, A Jesus 
how can we say it? a Jesus that we can truly know as the son of God and not merely a good teacher, that is not a true invitation. Any gospel invitation that does not present a culturally offensive invitation, uh, Jesus, no matter what the culture, needs to be called into question. And anytime a culture is accepting Jesus as normative, well, I don't think that culture really understands Jesus, actually. Moving on, John 7.25 contains a fascinating cluster of oida terminology, knowledge terminology. His audience claims to know him, where he came from, and Jesus affirms that they do, in fact, know him in the sense of knowing about him, but they do not, in fact, know the Father who sent Jesus. Again, Jesus' claim of divine origin here, they cannot handle that knowledge. This is what causes people to try to kill him. In the final part of John 7, the Pharisees claim that it is knowledge of the law that is essential. There's an irony there. Instead of knowledge of the Messiah, they prefer knowledge of the law. They fail to see that this Messiah has superseded the law. Knowledge of the law is essential, and lack of knowledge of the law will bring a curse. In verse 52, the Pharisees claim to know Jesus' origins. We know he came from Galilee. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Ironically, in 929, they will claim the opposite. We don't know where he comes from. And in that, they are actually closer to the truth than they realize, sadly. Turn to John 10. We're going to park on here for a little bit because this is key to the backdrop of John 21. Hold your spot in John 10, and now turn to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 is the backdrop of much of the shepherding imagery that goes on in the Gospel of John. Here, the Lord rebukes very strongly the spiritual leadership and the political leadership of Israel. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Interestingly, in the epistle of Jude, verse 12, he declares that the heretics are those who are feeding themselves, literally poimeno, they are shepherding themselves. The sign of a heretic is that he takes care of himself and not others. Throughout verse 16 in Ezekiel 34, God excoriates, I hope I pronounced that word correct, it was such an awesome word I wanted to fit it into my sermon somehow, excoriates these self-serving shepherds leaders of the people, but in the end, he declares that he, Yahweh, will in fact be their shepherd. He will search them out. He will feed them. He will rescue them. He will bring them to good pasture. Verse 16, I will seek that which was lost. Does that sound familiar? Maybe somewhere in the gospel of John? Back to John 10, Jesus declares then himself to be the good shepherd. Everything that the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 were not, Jesus is. In fact, he even goes farther than that. He now identifies himself with Yahweh. Yahweh is a good shepherd, but Jesus is the good shepherd. Significantly, this passage intermingles shepherding terminology with knowledge terminology. Verse 4, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Verse 5, they know not the voice of strangers. Verses 14 through 15, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Keep this in mind once we get to John 21. This is the backdrop. 
On the way there to John 21, a couple other significant verses. John 10, 38, Jesus demands that the hostile Jews at least believe in the miracles that he is performing, which can lead to further knowledge and faith in, Jesus, in who Jesus claims to be. At least accept what is right there in front of your eyes. You know these miracles are happening. You know they're supernatural. You know the devil can't do these kinds of miracles. At least accept that little knowledge that you have that can lead to something further. John 13, Jesus possesses special knowledge of what is coming. John 14 and 15 is replete with knowledge terminology, what Jesus knows. John 15, 15 is really, really cool. John 15, 15, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. The key takeaway there, knowledge implies relationship. The master reveals his game plan to his servants. D.A. Carson writes that Abraham and Moses are the only Old Testament characters who are called friends of God, and they enjoyed extraordinary access to the mind of God. And yet now we come to the New Testament, and we can be friends of God. Carson further writes, an absolute potentate demands obedience in all his subjects. His slaves, however, are simply told what to do while his friends are informed of his thinking. Enjoy his confidence and learn to obey with a sense of privilege and a full understanding of their master's heart. So also here, Jesus' absolute right to command is in no way diminished, but he takes pains to inform his friends of his motives, plans, and purposes. There will be times when the divine plan will remain inscrutable to us, but the fact remains that God has revealed to us, his subjects, but also his friends, what his game plan is, and he will continue to reveal his plan. Even though we are his subordinates, as friends, he will continue to reveal his plan to us through the Spirit and through his word. Let's not take that for granted. The fact that we know the mind of God to a certain degree is meant to give us confidence. The fact that we know what God's plan is for the world It's called the Great Commission, right, (laughs) among other things. The fact that we know what God's plan for the world is, the fact that we understand that, the fact that we comprehend that, the fact that we can actually embrace that even though we don't always feel like it, the fact that we know what God's plan is gives us confidence that we are, in fact, his friends. Chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer links very closely with his disciples' knowledge of him that he came from God with Jesus' intimate knowledge of the Father, verse 23. Jesus' desire for the whole world to know through the unity of his disciples that God had sent him. The more we know God, the more we know Jesus, the more we are unified with each other in purpose, and through that, the more people, other people outside the church come to know God. And now John 21. There are other passages throughout John that use knowledge terminology, but I want to land here now. You know this passage well. A variety of sermons have been preached on it. I'm going to try not to reinvent the wheel too much. We know this is Jesus' rehabilitation of Peter. Threefold denial, threefold affirmation. That's key. We all know that Jesus' threefold question, do you love me, is meant to offset Peter's threefold denial. What's a bit more controversial and what scholars are divided on is whether The difference in terminology between Peter and Jesus, agapao, Jesus says, phileo, Peter says, is meant to indicate some kind of a weaker commitment, perhaps, a weaker love, like Peter is only only saying, I kind of like you, Jesus. Scholars are divided on that. I I think that that's perhaps a little bit overreading. Phileo is used quite intensely in the Gospel of John, John 5.20, for the Father loveth the Son, that's phileo. So I'm a little bit slow to read too much into into the 
a difference in meaning there. I think something else is going on. I think it's an allusion to Proverbs 8, but that's neither here nor there. However, the reason I am focusing on knowledge terminology is that I want you to understand that Peter's appeal to Jesus' knowledge does not come out of a vacuum. Put yourself in the shoes of Peter here. It is clear from chapter 20 that Peter has, to a certain degree, already been commissioned. And yet, Peter is still remembering his threefold denial. He has not yet had that perhaps personal talk about what happened. It's awkward. Peter doesn't know where he fits in. Yes, okay, he's a general part of Jesus' commissioning that he has given, but Peter's still uncertain. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know if he is truly restored or not. Those doubts are nagging. The nightmares will not leave him alone. He doesn't know where he stands. I don't think Peter goes fishing out of rebellion. I, I think he goes fishing because he's confused. He just doesn't know what else to do. It's a coping mechanism, if you will. Things can never go back to where they were before. Peter knows that, but he doesn't know where he's going now. He doesn't know what the future holds. Jesus does not rebuke Peter for fishing. To the contrary, as Peter fails miserably at, at the one thing he was good at, perhaps that and shooting his mouth off, but as Peter fails miserably with that, Jesus actually helps him go fishing and then invites him to a banquet, which, by the way, that's also a major theme throughout the Gospel of John banqueting. He allows the disciples to bring the fish that they themselves have caught through his help. It's significant, I feel, that Jesus seeks out Peter. In his darkest moment after his threefold denial, Jesus actually seeks out Peter specifically to engage with him. John 21, 15 through 17 is just incredible with the rich variety of language. Not only do we alternate between phileo and agapao, we also alternate between lambs and sheep. And we also alternate, that word feed there is actually two Greek terms, bosco and poimeno, to feed in the sense of giving food to animals versus shepherd in a general sense more take care of. One scholar has noted that the dense cluster of sheep terminology, sheep, lamb, feeding, take care of, there's only one other place in the entire Greek Bible, Old and New Testament, where you see that specific terminology clustered together that, that tightly, and that's Ezekiel 34. That scholar even goes so far as to say there's no way a Jewish person could hear this passage and the alteration of that language and not even think of Ezekiel 34. Yahweh is the good shepherd. The reason I've spent so much time taking you on a tour of knowledge, language, and John is once again I want you to realize Peter's appeal, you know all things, Lord, is not drawn from a vacuum. It does not come off the top of his head. It comes from his intimate knowledge of Jesus and his ministry and his teaching, that Jesus is the one who knows. To say, you know me, don't you, is not a casual, flippant remark. To appeal to Jesus' knowledge is not a cop-out. As one scholar says, when Peter states, you know that I love you, this does not have the sense of, why ask me? You know me, don't you? Jesus' knowledge is rather the last thing on which Peter can base an appeal before Jesus. His own actions have witnessed against him, and more than these seems to mock him more than justify him. All that is left to Peter is, you know that I love you, an appeal to Jesus' knowledge of him as one of his own. This is an act of desperate faith when nothing else remains. We can, I believe, go a step further. Psalm 139, 23 through 24, David, the shepherd king, says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. In light of that, Peter fully knows his failure. 
His appeal to Jesus' knowledge of him is not an appeal for vindication. How, he can be, how can he possibly be vindicated if Jesus knows all things, including his three denials? It is not an appeal for vindication. Rather, like Psalm 139, Jesus' appeal to Jesus, Peter's appeal to Jesus' knowledge of him is an appeal for an investigation. An investigation that will, in fact, reconcile the two, that will, in fact, restore their fellowship for both Jesus and Peter, and will, in fact, lead Peter on the right direction. At this point, Peter cannot appeal to his success. Peter cannot appeal to his own good works. Peter cannot appeal to his reputation, which is now shot in front of all the disciples. I mean, where was he, right? Of course, all the disciples are really concerned about their own reputation at this point. Peter cannot appeal to his skill as a fisherman even, because even that has abandoned him this fine morning. Peter cannot appeal to his boldness or his witnessing skills, all of which he has no doubt manifested during those three years with Jesus. When Peter is at the end of his rope, beset by nightmares, replaying the scenario of his denial in his mind, surrounded by people before whom he can no longer maintain that facade of being a super disciple, of being a leader, at that point, all that Peter can appeal to is Jesus' relationship with him, Jesus' knowledge of him his own intimate knowledge. In fact, Jesus is the only person on earth that Peter can appeal to on that basis, as John has made clear throughout his gospel. To declare, you know that I love you, is not a statement of unbelief. To the contrary, it is a statement of humble weakness that is nowhere else to turn except the divine mind of Christ, which Peter knows as gracious and compassionate, full of mercy. Loving, forgiving. It is appeal to Jesus Christ, not as a war hero to a general, but as a lamb to a shepherd, a dumb sheep to a shepherd, one who is trying to find his way, does not know what to do with himself because he is lost. When Peter appeals to Jesus' knowledge of him, he is banking on the fact, risking his entire soul on the fact that Jesus is still willing to call him his sheep. To appeal to Jesus' knowledge of him is to appeal to Jesus as shepherd. Jesus, who is meek and lowly in heart, does more than call him his sheep. He then commissions him to be one of his shepherds. Let's unpack that for us today. Three key points I have. Three key points here. Number one, Jesus' knowledge of us, his relationship with us, is not something we can earn. And I think we all know that, but perhaps we sometimes act that way. Lord, you know me. Look how much time I spend in prayer. Lord, you know me. How often do I go soul winning? Lord, you know me. Look how big my church is. Lord, you know me. I go to BCM, right? Of course you know me. Anytime we wish to get our relationship with Jesus Christ on the right track, we must not appeal to anything that we have done. We must not appeal to anything that we are except for the fact that we are his sheep. We have nothing else we can appeal to. You know me. I belong to you is all that we can say. Not you. You know me. Look at what I do. Have we considered that perhaps in our daily life? Are we thinking of our relationship to Jesus Christ in terms of what we can do for him, forgetting that we are a sheep. Sheep don't really do nothing except stand around and look dumb, right? <laughs> and yes, he will commission us for great things. Yes, he will utilize for us for great things, but we got to get to ground zero of that relationship, and that's the fact that we are first and foremost sheep. Jesus knows us because we are his sheep. Once we get that settled, then we're ready to go do what Jesus says, we, says he wants us to do. Number one, Jesus' knowledge of us is not something we can earn because we are his sheep. It all starts with that fact. Number two, 
Like Peter, we must embrace that Jesus knows all things about us. And this, I think, has two subpoints here. Number one, to, Jesus, to appeal to Jesus' knowledge then is an invitation to an investigation. Like Psalm 139, let's invite him to know us so that he can search things out about us. We cannot truly, truly develop a proper relationship with Jesus Christ unless there is an open invitation to him to walk into our heart and look through it. Come on in and search me, Lord, not hold up a second while I hide the stale pizza and the decomposing banana. I was once in a dorm room too, you know. A vibrant relationship without, with, with Jesus cannot exist with such an on, without such an ongoing invitation. Search me, O oh God. And is that not a scary thing to pray? Search me, O oh God, because you don't know where exactly Jesus is going to go searching, right? But that's part of being a sheep. May that be a constant invitation. Yet on the positive side, if Jesus knows all things, he also knows our future. My former, former research assistant, Alex Rohoff, pointed out once to me that in verse 18, Jesus prophesies Peter's future in such a way that makes it clear Jesus knows that Peter will, in fact, feed his sheep. This is meant to give confidence to Peter. Yeah, it's about Peter's death, but guess what? The fact that Peter is willing to die for Jesus in the future means that Peter embraces Jesus' commission. Jesus knows all things about us. Job 23.10, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he trieth me, I shall come forth as gold. Ironically, that statement by Job is precisely in the context of Job himself struggling to understand the mind of God. The previous verses talk, say, he hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. Job is very discouraged. He can't understand God. He can't understand what's going on. It is precisely at that moment that Job has to say, I may not know him as well, but he knows me. And that's where he bases his confidence on. There will, in fact, be dark times in our lives where the glimpses we get of the Almighty seem to be few and far between. In such cases, all we have to fall on is our knowledge of his knowledge. We may not know him as well as we wish we do, but he knows us perfectly and ultimately. He can see the path that we're taking. He can give us subtle nudges left and right. He can show us the way we should take. He can help ourselves he can help us know ourselves better. Blaise Pascal once wrote, not only do we know God through Jesus Christ alone, but we know ourselves only by Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we do not know what is our life, nor our death, not God, not ourselves. We are living in an unprecedented era where people are having identity crisis, even down to stupid things such as your gender, right? We realize that our identity comes from Christ. We do not know ourselves as well as we wish we do. We cannot pretend to know ourselves as well as we wish to, as well as we wish to. We must appeal to God's knowledge of us. Even on those times where I don't know where I'm heading, God knows where I'm heading, and that's where I can appeal to. Why? Because I'm just a dumb sheep wandering around, and he's a shepherd. So point number two, this is an invitation both in the negative sense in that Jesus needs to have access to our hearts to see what's in there, to show us what's in there, but that also in the positive sense that because he knows our future, he can give us subtle nudges. We can rest in his confidence of where we are going and what we are doing and his direction. Number three, I'd like to talk specifically to you preacher boys. I've never been a pastor. I'm grateful for that. It wasn't my calling. I would make a horrible fat pastor. I'd hate everybody after the first couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Students are so much more sheep-like. I can tell them to take a quiz and, bah, we'll take a quiz. And, you know. 
Sorry, prison epistle students, they all just took a quiz today. <laughs> Ironically, the sheep in your church don't act like sheep are supposed to sometimes. They act like, well, I don't know what they act like. I defer to people with greater knowledge than me. <laughs> but to you preacher boys, to you pastors, future pastors here, you cannot embrace Jesus' knowledge without tr- of you and truly grow without embracing his commissioning. Feed my sheep. This is given to Peter as the future pastor, as as even the leader of the disciples at that point. To a certain degree, many of the things that you as a pastor will do can be done and should be done, and in some cases can be done better by the people in your congregation. Prayer and fasting, witnessing, showing kindness to others, holy living, all of these, edifying the church, even teaching Sunday school. There will be people in your congregation that can do that better better than you, and your people should be doing those things. But there is one command that they cannot do. That command is unique to you future pastors here, and that is feed my sheep. By definition, you cannot feed the sheep if you are yourself a sheep right with with them. And yes, we ourselves are sheep. Those of you in the pastoral ministry will be sheep to a certain degree, but God has also called you to be a shepherd. And with that calling comes a unique command, take care of these people. I will never be able to live out that calling in the way that you future pastors can and the way that Pastor Van Gelderen and others do. Feed my sheep. What does that mean? Well, first of all, in his later epistle, Peter echoes that. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither, and that echoes Ezekiel 34 to not for filthy lucre, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Keeping in mind that I am not a pastor and have never been a pastor, and will probably never will be a pastor, keeping that in mind, nonetheless, I do three, see three points of application specifically for you preacher boys. Number one, put the welfare of the flock ahead of yourself. This is a unique calling for you. Your ministry is for the benefit of the church. Your ministry is not for your own glitz and glamour. Your ministry is not for your own fame. Your ministry is not for the influence you might gain and certainly not perish the thought for any money you might get, right? Your ministry is for the benefit of the flock. Put them first. The flock does not exist to make you happy. It does not exist to make you look good. It does not exist to make your life comfortable. Rather, you exist for the benefit of the flock that God has called you to serve, and that is a unique calling to you. Embrace it. For you pastors, embracing Jesus' knowledge of of you means embracing Jesus' flock, putting their welfare first. Number two, this thought just occurred to me the other day in the general context of ministry, but number two, as you embrace your calling to lead around a bunch of dumb sheep, never, never call your congregation dumb sheep, by the way, but nonetheless, as you embrace your calling, don't take it personally. They're sheep. Yeah, they, sheep, generally speaking, your congregation will not get up in the morning saying, ha, 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 how can I annoy pastor today? Now, in some cases, that probably happens, right? In some cases. At that point, don't worry about it. God will take care of it. Okay? There are people that God will take it upon himself to deal personally because he has commissioned you and he values your role. Your role. But generally speaking, your sheep are sheep. They'll annoy you. They'll hurt you. Don't take it personally. You're still their shepherd. Then number three, it means claiming Jesus' knowledge of your flock for your own ministry. Lord, you know what's going on with them. I don't know what's going on with them, right? 
There will be times where you will be totally kerflummoxed about what is going on in your church. Well, at that point, you don't need to have perfect knowledge because the over-shepherd does. Appeal to his knowledge of you and appeal to his knowledge of them for your ministry. Jesus knows you. Embrace that knowledge and go out and help others with that.